Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, please. If you need a Bible, just simply raise your hand and we'll give you one, one of our ushers. If you need a Bible, if you've got one, turn there and encourage you to follow along today. We're going to go to a couple passages. And uh, the table of contents is an easy way to find various books of the Bible that, uh, that you don't know how to locate if you're new to the Scriptures. So use it. It's one of the most important pages in the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It's a long one. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray and ask God for help this morning. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. As we dive into this seventh word, this seventh commandment. We pray that you will convict us of our sin and that you will show us how this seventh word is, is, is truly a word of grace for us. Point us to, cro- to the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my great joys as a pastor, serving as your pastor in particular, is uh, when I have the opportunity to, to perform one of your weddings. And many of you sitting here right now, I've had that opportunity to stand in front of you and, and, uh, and how good it is to hear you say, I do, to the, to the following words. Let me, what, every time I do a wedding, I read these words and I say, will you say, I do, to these things? And those of you couples uh, who I've had the privilege to be part of your ceremony, you, uh, you're familiar with this, and you better be able to still say, I do. That's kind of the whole point of this seventh commandment. Will you receive so-and-so to be your husband or wife, to live together with her or him as your companion for life, to love him, to lead him as God has instructed, to give yourself for her, to pray for her, to, uh, to forsake all others, listen to these words, being faithful to her or him alone until God shall separate you by death. And then what a joy it is to hear you repeat these vows, I take you, so-and-so, to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. That means lifelong. Forsake all others until death. Those are very strong words, are they not? Why such a strong commitment? Why such a strong commitment? I've had in the past, none of you, but in the past I've had a couple who wanted to uh, do their own vows, and it was basically something like, I love you. Like, well, no, we got to say something about forsaking all others until you die, all right? Get that in there, into your vows somehow. Because this is the marriage pledge. And marriage is a gift from God. It's the gift of companionship. Marriage is the gift of growing old with another person. It's It's beautiful. It's a beautiful gift from God. I've had a, a well-meaning friend of mine once who told me 
uh, don't speak too highly of marriage around single folks because you might make them feel bad that they don't have, you know, that they're not married. And I was like, well, you know, I don't think that would help. Like, I don't think single people, uh, first of all, I would, it, it would make them feel like you just think they're dumb, all right? Because I know marriage is a gift and you're pretending like I'm not missing anything, Right? And also, at the same time, I was like, you know, it, it minimizes the sacrifice that a brother or sister is making who is currently single for whatever reason and celibate, right? So we don't uh, downplay marriage. At the same time, we don't bemoan singleness. Singleness is a gift of God in, in various ways, in, in a number of ways. But marriage is a gift. It truly is. Yet our society, uh, not single folks, but often married folks in our society have downplayed and really downgraded marriage. A recent study showed that one out of three married men have committed adultery. The same study showed that one out of five married women have at some point in their relationship committed adultery. The reasons they give were all over the place, including just time away, a close friend that they got too close to. Half of the men who committed adultery said, I just couldn't help myself. Just a primal urge. You know, one secular sociologist said that we are born polygamous. Through our understanding of a biblical worldview, I think we would just tweak that a little bit, and I would say we are born with the desire for polygamy. Many, many folks are born with the desire for polygamy. Many people would say, I just don't feel like having one person for my entire life. And we would, understanding the biblical worldview, just simply say, we're born sinners. That's what we would call that. We're born with a warped understanding of marriage and sexuality. Just like honoring parents a couple weeks ago, the command to honor your parents is really about honoring God. This seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, it's really about God. It's really about God. No other picture is used throughout Scripture to exemplify our relationship with Jesus. It's really about our rebellion against God. It's really about our adultery against God, the fact that we are the one running out on God all of the time. We are the one with the hard heart, going to other lovers, finding hope and happiness in other gods. And God is the faithful husband, the Christ, who has come and pursued us and has found us and has rescued us. This commandment is extremely important because number one, Our culture needs it, all right, and we need it. And number two, because it is really all about God. So I want to address the seventh commandment today under three headings. The first heading is this, the picture of the marriage pledge. The second heading is this, the perversion of the picture. And the third heaven, the third heading is this, it is the fight for purity. The picture of the marriage pledge. Look at the verse again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not 
commit adultery. Now, this commandment is primarily talking here about sex. And I know in a lot of churches, we don't want to talk about that three-letter word. It's somehow uncouth. But the reality is, is if we don't talk about it, it's a major part of our life, huge part of life, uh, part of what it means to be human. And if we ignore this theme, well, we're really going to, <laughs> to have some problems, aren't we? And God includes a commandment about sex in his top ten laws. It's about God's intent for sexual experience. It's about the picture of the pledge of marriage. Sex. I heard Tim Keller once say that sex is like taking communion. I see those raised eyebrows and cocked heads. <laughs> what are you talking about? Go home and call your mom. Yeah, they said uh, sex is like taking the Lord's Supper. Your mom says, stay away from that church. They're a cult. I mean, there's something wrong with the name of the garden. Bear with me for a moment. Think about it. At initial conversion, when we become a Christian, that is a moment when we come to Christ with nothing. And we say, I have nothing to bring. I'm coming to you. You are my only hope, and I'm feeding off of you. I'm finding my nourishment, finding my life in you. That is conversion. It's coming to Christ and saying, I need you. All right? What is communion? Communion is this, what we could call a, a covenant renewal, renewing our marriage vows with Christ. It's when we come to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup and we are reminded of this day that we first believed. We're reminded the joy is brought back into our life of, oh yes, I remember now. I forgot Monday through Saturday, but I remember now that my life is all about coming to Jesus, Right? It's a reminder. It's a renewal. It's beautiful. And it's for, then, not everyone. It's for those who have an intimate relationship with Jesus. It's for those who have come to Christ and, and come into that covenant, that relational covenant with Christ, and they've been washed and regenerated, and they're baptized and part of the fellowship of God's people. They're part of Jesus and they come and they take this supper together. Now, take communion out of that context, and what do you have? Just eating and drinking. It's just a primal urge to fill your stomach. It means nothing. Outside of a relationship with Jesus, you're just eating a piece of bread and drinking a little shot of whatever. It means nothing. You've hollowed it of its significance and its meaning. Take sex out of marriage and you've hollowed it. It now is just about primal urge. It's just about a desire. It's about your belly being satisfied. It's about your desires being satisfied. And it's been hollowed of its, of its significance. It means nothing. On the contrary, on the positive side, it is a picture of our union. It is a picture of our relationship with our spouse. 
So therefore, Christians ought to have a very different understanding of sex than all of the world around us. We protect this activity, not as prudes, but we protect it because we prize it. We protect it because we understand how wonderful and beautiful it is, how we, because we think so highly of it. If you're not a Christian here today, what I want you to know is that if you become a Christian and understand a biblical worldview of, of, of sex, then you will have a, a higher and better understanding of sex, not worse, not more prudish, all right? The marriage covenant is a picture of the marriage pledge. How so? Let me just break it down for you a little bit. First, sex pictures complementary oneness. In the same breath, Tim Keller said, the Bible is simple. The Bible is simple. Don't, don't, uh, uh, until you're ready to enjoy all of life together, until you're ready to enjoy, uh, to, to share all of your food, until you're ready to share your bank account, until you're ready to share your children, until you're ready to share a house, until you're ready to share old age together, until you're ready to die together. Well, don't share your bodies. The Bible's just simple. The Bible kind of just makes sense. It's oneness. Genesis chapter 2, God brings Eve to Adam, and Adam receives Eve as a gift, and there God in the garden performs the first wedding. This is why, the Bible says, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Oneness is cleaving. They became one flesh. Not a, uh, we're going to eventually maybe be one flesh, and so let's go ahead and pretend we are now kind of one flesh. Not a, uh, we love each other, and so let's just go ahead and share our bodies, and we will think about sharing our old age later. No, no, sex is the coming together. It's the one flesh. It's the picture of oneness. I have a pair of boots in my house, and the bottom of the boots are falling off, and I was looking frantically through the drawers the other day for my little bottle of Gorilla Glue. Whenever I need to glue anything, even if I'm working on a little craft with my kids and they want to put some construction tape, uh, construction paper together, I'm going to look for the Gorilla Glue. That stuff is amazing. You get some on your index finger and your thumb, and you're like doing the okay sign for the rest of your life, right? It's, it's not coming apart. Uh, sex is the Gorilla Glue of marriage. That's how it's intended to be. It's, it's, it's what sticks us. It's, it's, the, it's the union. You know what, what should really disgust us about pornography? It's the fact that this Gorilla Glue has lost its stickiness. It's the fact that this act of, of oneness has been hollowed, and it means absolutely nothing. Secondly, sex pictures transparency. On your wedding day, two become one. You know, as a church, brothers and sisters, whenever we experience the wedding of another one of our church members, it's beautiful, isn't it? We're watching a massive, massive thing happen. Two become one. On that day, uh, 
husband and wife uncover emotion, emotionally. They say to one another, I will unconditionally accept you and love you. Like, I know that as we get into this life together, I'm going to find things about you that I don't like. I know you've got some warts. But I'm making a commitment right now that no matter what I find in you, that you are mine and I am yours. I am unconditionally loving you. Now, what is the picture of that? It's the unveiling. It's the uncovering. It's the coming together. It's the vulnerability. It's saying, here I am. And it is absolute acceptance. Family, we take this activity outside of marriage, and you lose that. There's no sense of, here I am, I know I'm going to be accepted. It's only worry. What if they don't accept me? What if after this happens, they are done with me? It pictures transparency, full exposure, total, total acceptance. Sex pictures security. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says that within marriage, and married folks, husbands and wives, listen, listen up. This is some pastoral advice. Within marriage, the activity of sexual relations is not optional. It's not optional. Well, it's been a few weeks, it's been a month. No, wait, what? It's not optional. Paul says it's not optional. Why? Because it part, a huge reason God has given this to you is so that you might be protected from temptation. I'll read it to you. He says, it's very simple. He says, do not deprive one another. Period. And then he does have a caveat. He says, if you do, okay, fine. One little caveat here. If you do, only do it if it's, it's a, a, a mutual decision to deprive one another, a mutual decision for the sake of prayer, all right? Which I've never met a couple who says, yeah, you know, it's been kind of, kind of tough. We've just been praying so much, like every night. We're just in prayer together, and we just don't have time because of prayer. If that is not your reason, you are outside of the biblical requirement within your marriage. He goes on, he says, but then, even if, it's just, even if it's for prayer, ASAP, get back together, he says, because of your lack of self-control. It's about security. Going on, sex also pictures love. Sexual activity, it's, it's the height of loving expression for one another. Which, single folks, should you, or should it rather feel natural uh, to want to embrace this activity with the person that you're falling in love with? The answer is, yeah, it should feel natural. It's fun. Don't, don't let that natural feeling scare you. But do we just go with the primal urge and say, well, let's go ahead and embrace the activity without embracing the reality of oneness? No, 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 no. No, we, we, uh, we, we allow that, that urge to move us to the reality of oneness. And then we embrace the picture of it. You might notice that I'm repeating myself a lot. Sex is the picture of marriage. That's the point 
I've been trying to make here for the last 10 minutes or so. We are to be salt and light in this world, brothers and sisters. How are we doing in this category? You might discuss with one another, maybe today get lunch with another member or a visitor and, and discuss this. What does, how does understanding sex as the picture of marriage change your concept and your understanding of sex? Or you might a- answer this question with one another. How does understanding sex as the picture of marriage make us saltier in a tasteless society? Sex is the picture of marriage. Moving on now, the perversion of the picture. Adultery, verse 14, you shall not commit Adultery, that word itself in the Hebrew indicates a husband who breaks the marriage covenant through having sexual relations with another man's wife. That's the context we're in here. That's the framework we are working from. You know, it's interesting. Society calls weird stuff perversion. Now, there is a lot of weird stuff. Don't get me wrong. There is weird stuff that is horrific to think about. And it is indeed perversion. And it all stems from the very base level immorality. Yet, when we come to the pages of the Scripture, what we begin to understand is perversion is not merely just the weird stuff. The picture of marriage taken outside of marriage, embracing it outside of the marriage covenant, is, according to the Scriptures, perversion. It's a perverted understanding, a perverted embrace of that picture. Last month, I went rafting, whitewater rafting, down the Piatt River Canyon. It's in Idaho. The canyon walls are extremely high, probably 50 feet or more in some places, maybe even up to 100 feet, I'm going to guess. Extremely high walls in this canyon, the, the, the narrowness uh, of, of these walls, it creates these amazing rapids as the water is just pushed through this canyon. And while I was going through the canyon on this raft, which was extremely excited, exciting, I actually thought of a time when I was a child on this little blow-up raft in a pond near our house. I remember sitting on this raft in this pond, I remember, remember being bored out of my mind, wishing that I had some rapids to ride. Friends, when we pervert the picture of marriage, what we do is we remove the high canyon walls that have protected sex, and we turn sex into a boring pond. A pond is easy to get in and get out of. A pond is accessible to all. Rapids are hard to get into. And once you get in, it's intoxicating. How does it pervert the picture? First, it breaks the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is broken. 
Their marriage began well. They were high school sweethearts. On their wedding day, all of their friends thought to themselves, this is perfect, picture perfect. Their first five years were pretty good, and then in that last fifth year, they began to drift apart. He was spending more time at the office, and she was trying to balance a part-time job as well as raising their child. One of his co-workers was a 20-something. He had never dreamed of having an affair. It was a Thursday. Some friends at work were going out, all canceled, except for these two. You want to go out and get a beer anyway? Sure, she said. And they went out together. What is about to happen? What is about to happen? This man is about to break the promise that he made to his wife. I will be faithful to you and to you alone until death. What would it look like for us as a church to be salt? Let your yes be yes. That is one of the most countercultural commands in the entire, our entire society. Let your yes be yes. In a world which hates commitment, let your yes be yes. Let your, the pledge that you made on that wedding day, the covenant that you came into, guide you and demand that you fall back in love with your spouse. In what ways are you as members of this church holding each other accountable for their marriage covenant? If someone were to come to you and say, well, I, I'm, I'm just not happy. I mean, he's, he's a fine guy. He's a good guy. I'm just not happy. Are you going to counsel your friend, well, I just want you to be happy, so whatever you got to do, I support you. Or are you going to say, no, 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 I was at your wedding and you pledged that you will be faithful for better and, remember those next two words, or worse. Are we encouraging one another in godly ways? It breaks the covenant. It, secondly, it signifies selfishness. Our make-believe couple that I just made up there. What's going to happen on this Thursday night? If things progress, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. This, this devastating reality in which this man is about to place his own desires over and above his wife's emotions, feelings, safety, and even spiritual well-being in order to gratify his own lust. It's selfishness. We are called to serve each other in the body of Christ. As a whole, we are to serve each other. We are to serve each other here in, this, in the context of church. We are to uh, spend ourselves in various ways. If you are a single individual right now, begin serving others right now, living outside of your own desires, and in doing so, prepare yourself for marriage, which is a life of service. If you are a good employee at work, I can almost guarantee it that at some level it's because you're a servant. You've learned to, in the context of work, live outside of your own desires and serve the greater good of your organization. If you have a servant's heart, you're going to care greatly for the city around us and you're going to find ways to serve. But friends, we will destroy all of this 
if we commit adultery. It will affect every aspect of your life as we embrace selfishness. You see, all these commandments are really linked together. We can't break one without breaking all of the others. Think of King David in the Psalms. King David, 1 Samuel, he, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Remember the story? He broke by committing adultery. Which commandment? little quiz here. It's the one we're on today, yeah. The seventh commandment, right. He broke the seventh commandment, but he didn't only break the seventh commandment. He also broke the tenth commandment as he coveted. He also broke the eighth commandment as he stole a man's wife. He also broke the sixth commandment as he then murdered the man whose wife he stole. He then broke the ninth commandment as he lied about it. And he also broke all the earlier ones as well as he rebels against God. Committing adultery leads you to breaking every single one of these commandments. And what's worse is we lie about the gospel. Committing adultery lies to the world about the gospel. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Turn quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, we see something remarkable here in verse 22. What we see here is that my marriage, personally, is not really just about Jess and I. It's not about us. Your marriage is not about you and your own spouse, but really your marriage is about Jesus and the church. Look at verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Hus uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ, etc. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So we see here now these direct commands to husbands and wives, paralleling them with Christ and the church. And then in verse 32, this mystery is profound, meaning the mystery of togetherness, the mystery of oneness, the mystery of husband and wife. It's profound, and I'm saying that He's clarifying himself. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is marriage all about? It's not about us. It's not about you. It's, it's about God and us. It's about Christ and his church. It's about what God is doing in the world, in us, through us, and how God through Christ is redeeming us forever. Throughout the Bible, Israel, God's people is referred to as the adulterous one, unfaithful to God, constantly running out on God. You might know the story of Hosea. I've used the story of Hosea as an illustration probably 150,000 times in this church. And it's because we, it, it frames our relationship with God. In Hosea, we see the man who's going after the prostitute. Right? God says, love her, because I want to show the world my love for my adulterous people. So keep loving her. Finally, there's the prostitute, his wife, who's being sold, and he brings money along, and he pays more than anyone else is willing to pay. He buys her with a great price. He brings her home. He washes her. He cleanses her. He gives himself to her. He... he, he focuses her on himself, and he says, you are going to be mine, and we're going to live together for a long time. We are the adulterous one. 
And Christ is the loving, pursuing husband who has found us. And the picture now now of marriage in the new covenant is to show the world the joy, love, and togetherness that we find in the gospel. So as husbands and wives, as we're encouraged here in Ephesians chapter 5, it's in the context of this is a picture of the gospel. And so if we commit adultery, we're lying to the world about what? The gospel. We're lying to the the world about God's faithfulness to us. We're lying to the world about what heaven will be like. Now some of you are puffed up. And some of you are thinking, my goodness, I'm glad that he's not talking to me today. I I got an easy out. Some of you, maybe you're single, and you, you say, you know what, I'm, <clears throat> I've been so celibate. It's really unbelievable how celibate I've been. <laughs> I'm good to go. Some of you are married, and you're like, you know, I've never dreamed of, I would never, I haven't touched another person. Turn to Matthew 5. Here we encounter some religious people. These are people who have never actually planned on having an affair. These are people, men actually, who have never touched a female that they're not married to. Now they might gaze at women as they walk by. They might take a second look as long as no one's looking at them. They might walk by the brothels and look down their noses at the men who are walking in and out. Ah, look at these men. And they might dream about what it's like to be them. They might imagine what it's like to go into that brothel. These religious people, as a matter of fact, were about to stone a girl who were caught in who was caught in adultery. And before they stone her, Jesus stops them and he says, Hold up. He who has no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. What's Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying is, is this woman has committed the outward sin that you have already committed in your heart. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27, he said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And I can't imagine that, I can only imagine that right now Jesus has his eye over in the religious folks over here. But I say to you that everyone who who, who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just as murder is rooted in the same sin as hate. Now, let's just be clear for a second. Murder, actually killing someone, comes with different consequences than anger and hate, right? We don't inflict the death penalty on someone who's, who's angry. There's different earthly consequences, but it's the same root sin. 
Same thing with adultery. Actually committing adultery, it comes with consequences that are different, that are harsh, that are, that are hard. With adultery, you have broken the covenant. You may have lost your marriage. We believe as a church that that's biblical grounds for divorce. Or, thanks be to God, if there is reconciliation and repentance and renewal, it's going to be a tough road. Consequences, earthly consequences are different, yet it is the exact same root sin as lust in the heart. What goes on in our mind? Our secret desires and hopes that we have. So we must fight for purity. And this is my last heading, and we're going to close with this. We must fight for purity. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Among you, let there not even be a hint of impurity. Not even a hint. Our fight flees the second look. You're not responsible for the first look, but you are responsible for the second look. And you say, well, I didn't look twice, I just looked one time for five minutes. You're responsible for the long look. All right, don't try to get around me on this one. Our fight flees the long stare, gazing upon the other individual. We flee ungodly emotional connections. We flee internet websites which bring us into a world that we should have nothing to do with. We flee chat rooms. We flee pictures. We flee sexual entertainment. We flee cohabitation. We flee every thought, but instead we take every thought captive and we say, I own you and you do not own me. I am going to rule you. And I'm not going to dwell on these thoughts. But friends, on our own, we will only fail. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just keep on failing. Imagine right now for just a moment that every bit of sexual immorality in your life just fell out of you for all to see and hit the floor in front of you. All of it, all right? Every picture you've ever looked at. All right, every sexual act you've ever been part of. Every thought you've ever had. Every time you've ever considered committing adultery. And maybe the time that you actually committed adultery. It's all falling out of you right now for all to see. There it is. You have two options in, the, in this moment. You can either flee from it and hide and say, that's not mine, I'm running, I'm covering up, or you can flee to Christ. Those are your two options. To run from God and to cover up and say, I don't know, I, I, I want nothing to do with you, just stay away, I can't approach you, I can't go to church, I can't take communion, I can't do this anymore, or you can flee to God. Friends, we are the adulterer, we are the ones who have been constantly running from God, 
Good news. God came to us. Christ came to us. And Jesus fought for you while you were still a sinner. He died for you. On the cross, Jesus died for fornicators. On the cross, Jesus died for adultery. Every sin that you just imagined falling out, He died for every single one of those sins. He died for every time you looked at pornography, for every time you had an ungodly thought, for every emotional affair you've ever had, for every idea, thought of of an affair that you had, for the time that you actually committed adultery. He died for all of these sins. And those who come to Christ, what they find is that they are washed, that they are cleansed, that they are forgiven, that they are renewed, that they are made new, that they are a new person. He has paid the price for you, and He, through Christ, God has healed you, cleansed you, and forgiven you. I wonder if Jesus has captured your heart this morning. I wonder if Jesus has won you over this morning. Friends, He is pleading with you to come to Him. Come to Him and find healing, find forgiveness, find hope, and find love and joy and togetherness of which marriage is only a taste. It's only a sample of the joy that we will have forever with God and one another in all of eternity. Married, single folks, divorced folks, we all this morning have the exact same invitation, and that is to come to Christ and to find life. Our fight as a single person who is striving for faithfulness, your fight as as an engaged couple who says, you know what, we're still not yet married. Your fight is one who is the product of adultery and divorce. Your fight as one who is a married couple saying, you know what, I do not want to commit adultery against my spouse. Our fight is not based on a guilt trip. We're just simply trying harder. Our fight is based on having this experience with Jesus. Christ is eternally faithful. He is eternally faithful. Christ is a gift to us of redemption. He will bring us into togetherness forever, the gift of salvation. And as we are renewed by Christ, we see that sex, the gift of sexuality, is indeed a sacred gift. The world has lied to us. It's not about mere recreation. As a matter of fact, it's not even about us, but it's about God. It's about a faithful God. A faithful God who has loved, wooed, and pursued an unfaithful people. May we experience, brothers and sisters, Christ. May we know His faithfulness. And may Christ change you. And may you be found faithful. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time that we could enter into this word, into your word, into the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. We see that it is indeed your kindness to us, your favor for us, that has saved us, that has changed us. May we never forget that. Let us be motivated by your kindness and grace as we seek to live faithfully as salt and light in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.